The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network. I'm Mike Leone here with Colin Drew of DailyRoto.com to bring you this week's edition of Going for the Green. Uh, we've got the RBC Heritage playing at Harbor Town, but Colin, we would be remiss if we didn't recap the Masters and Patrick Reed's victory uh, going, you know, not quite wire to wire, but I believe he finished the second round as a leader, took his second round through the final round, had uh, an okay final round, but he was able to stave off some some charges. You know, Rory came out firing early, missed that four foot eagle putt on second, that actually would have tied it. Uh, you know, erasing a three-stroke lead in two holes, but he missed that one. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if he makes that. And then Spieth made a run, Fowler made a run, but uh, Reed was able to hold them all off. Yeah, that was, I mean, one of the more memorable Masters for sure. Uh, that Spieth minus eight on Sunday, that whole place was was roaring. And it was kind of crazy, surreal just to see. It almost felt like it was quiet whenever Reed was doing good things because everyone was just hoping for the good stories with all these guys gunning at him. But Definitely one of the more loaded leaderboards that I remember. Um, obviously, got a couple of guys who ended up finishing inside the top 10 that I think may have counted as surprises, um, including Tony Finau. So that, that was one of the things that was more frustrating. I know we we liked him a lot from a course fit perspective. And just with that ankle injury that happened in the part three, decided it, it wasn't worth the risk and that there was you know a, a decent chance that he wouldn't start or wouldn't finish and it wasn't until what 10 minutes before lock 20 minutes before lock that we actually got confirmation that he was gonna give it a crack so ended up with with no fee now even though obviously he's a guy that a lot of people in dfs but especially you have uh been really keen on yeah it it was bittersweet because I had you know my Finau, I had him in my my Thunderdome lineup I had like 25% in the Millie Maker and then I was like okay I won't play him in the Thunderdome but I'm going to play 20% in the Millie Maker and then as we didn't get news I was like well I'll save you know these lineups in case we get news then we got news like 4 minutes before lock and I was afraid I would screw it up and didn't end up with any so as one of my favorite golfers it it was a weird feeling where I wanted him to do well, but not like too well because I was <laughs> yeah. uh, kicking myself. But it was nice, you know, that back nine uh, in the final round, I believe he made five birdies in a row, which he locked up a spot in next year's Masters. So that was really good to see. Overall, though, uh, not a very good week for me. It was a frustrating week because for the most part, the guys I full faded, you know, really took the game theory to the next level in the Millie Maker full fading. Uh, Justin Rose, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Kevin Chappell, and Bubba Watson. And Watson was the one guy that didn't work out. He did end up on the winning million maker lineup. Um, but overall, I was overweight a lot of the guys up there. I just uh, had way too much Patrick Cantlay and struggled with the sub 8K golfers, which of course included Patrick Reed, who I only had a sprinkle of. So uh, hoping to bounce back this week at the RBC Heritage. Again, it's played at Harbor Town. And Colin, unless you, you've got any more Masters notes, we can move on to that. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we can move on. I had a pretty rough week in the end as well. Lost around 60% of my buy-ins. Uh, could have been worse, I'd say. Could have been better. I, for a little while, I had oh, definitely get lost uh, 60%. I probably had 60% exposure to Cantlay and Garcia. So that explains a lot of it. Um was in the top 50 of the Millie Maker decently late on Sunday before that Charlie Hoffman hole-in-one. So it seems like it's a new Augusta tradition is someone getting a <laughs> hole-in-one on the back nine on Sunday to put massive swings in GPPs. So I the guy, it was fun. It was fun the guy who happen. won, uh, his name is Drew, and I, I don't have his username in front of me, which is, you know, shame on me, but... He got married that weekend and was driving home and didn't even know what was going on. Uh, found out after the tournament that Hoffman made the hole in one. So, uh, unlike my experience last year where Kucher made the hole in one, I was going absolutely bonkers, uh, you know, helping me make a charge there. Didn't quite finish it out, but pretty crazy story for the guy that, that won. So congrats to Drew for taking that down. Unfortunately, it wasn't our Colin Drew or our Drew Dinkmeyer. So you, you guys will have to get the next one, but, uh, yeah, okay. Let, let's, let's move on to Harbor Town. It's a 7,100 yard par 71. One of the shortest courses on tour also has some of the narrowest 
fairways on tour. It's a coastal course, so weather can impact the scoring environment. Um, but generally, it's an average course in terms of difficulty. Yeah, and I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, Pete Dye course, so I think a lot of his courses are known for, you know, you kind of have to play the tee shots to certain positions and try to get the right angles. And so um, even some of the holes that are maybe a little bit shorter aren't necessarily shorter in the way that you can just like bomb a driver up there. Um, they're they're kind of protected or force you to go to certain spots. Um in, in general, I haven't looked at the weather yet this week, but it, usually it can get windy, obviously. And so I will be checking back on Wednesday evening to see if there's any draw things going on or just to see if it's going to play more challenging or easier um, just in general. Um, strokes gained approach seems to matter more here relative to tour averages. Uh, anywhere from two to three times more important than strokes gained off the tee. So one of the first things I did this week was I fired up the course history database that we have on Daily Roto, and I sorted by last year's event in the strokes gained leaders. And I was surprised to find that the guys, um, and it fits the course as we just described it, but the guys who gained the most strokes off the tee last year were names like Jason Duffner, Francesco Molinari, Russell Henley, and I think that just shows you immediately the importance of accuracy in a, in a stat that is typically bomber heavy. So strokes gained off the tee leaders on the whole, uh, you would not expect to see those guys up at the top. But for this event, those are the guys who end up emerging. So definitely more of an accuracy uh, track. I know we talk a lot about course fit. Some weeks we don't think it matters very much. This is one of the weeks where I do think it matters more so. Um, and another thing that I did once I saw that was I ran the correlation between season-long strokes gained off the tee to event results in that statistic to figure out, like, is it typically good, you know, drivers of the ball who do well here off the tee? And it had one of the lowest correlations as far as um, between the the overall tour metrics for that stat in this specific event. So I think that just shows you that in general, um, it's not going to be a course that plays well to the longer hitters, it's going to take the driver out of their hands, and it's going to be uh, something where the strokes gained approach and accuracy guys can can rise up a little bit. Yeah, and it makes this week extra fun to try and figure out who those guys are and who we should manually bump. Of course, Data Golf provides our projections for us over at DailyRoto.com, and they do a great job, and they have this unbiased model that gives us a fantasy model and also a finish probabilities model. I really like the finish probabilities model. Uh, it doesn't right now take into account course fit, but I kind of like that we get this unbiased look at things, uh, at, you know, based on how these guys have played the last two years, six months, two months. Uh, this is where they rank in terms of skill. And then from there, you can pick and choose and find the guys that you think, okay, you know, this guy's, uh, a good course fit. I'm going to bump him up a little bit or, you know, this guy, I don't like his recent strokes gained approach. And we've got a, a strokes gained approach trends tool, Colin, a data, another data biz that you created for us on dailyroto.com that helps you to do that. But let's talk about some of the traditional course history guys, because this, this is the course that might break you if you don't believe in course history. And the big one there is Luke Donald, who's finished uh, in our notes here. I, I've like triple looked at this because it's just crazy. Second, second, 15th, second, third, 37th, second, third, second. Uh, that's a lot of seconds and thirds, Colin. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I don't know. It's one of the ch more challenging weeks every year just because he even, it seems like even when he's not playing well coming in or his, his form is all over the map that he ends up somehow pulling off a, a top 20 finish. Uh, some of that is going to obviously go, goes into, it's not just course history, it's course fit. And I think that when we think about Luke Donald's game, it's definitely more of a, an approach guy. But even those years, like he's not even like highly rated on tour and strokes gained approach by the end of the season. And so it seems like for, for I don't know, for whatever it is, he's got a rabbit's foot or a horseshoe up his ass or something because he, he shows up every year at this event. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And uh, it's one of those things too, like even if you – believe that he's better at this course like he's not a good golfer and he gets owned because of the wild course history so it's like even if you wanted to believe in it you know where's the edge you're getting playing him but you've also got Jim Furyk with a couple of wins here Kevin Na who fits the course fit you know good around the green a good approach shot but not a length guy Matt Kuchar you know, another guy that kind of makes sense, 10 for 10 in cuts. He's got a win, a top 15 in the last four years. And then we've got Dustin Johnson, um, kind of the anti 
Luke Donald here, who's had uh, two missed cuts, and otherwise he skipped the event, but he's playing this year. And you do wonder, you know, where you've got these guys on the extreme ends, Luke Donald with this elite course history, but he's negative in all strokes gained tee to green metrics. And you've got Dustin Johnson, who's clearly the most talented golfer in this field by a pretty wide margin, but his biggest weapon, which is length off his tee is mitigated here. He's only 60th on tour in strokes gained approach. So, you know, how do you, you balance things? Yeah. It's one of the things that I'm struggling with a little bit. Some of it will come down to ownership. Uh, it's, you know, whenever a golfer doesn't play an event, and the tour did implement a new rule. I forget when exactly it went into um, into play and, and the exact parameters, but essentially each golfer is required to play an event every X number of years. And so DJ playing this event, you know, he played it, missed it twice early in his career. I think it's been, it's been like eight or nine years since he last played it. So clearly not a place that he really cared about playing at. Now, why would that be? Some of it might just be because it's usually after the Masters, and so he, he's you know gearing up for that and wants to take a little break. But some of it is these guys don't want to play every week, and so they try to find courses that fit them. And, and that's one of the things that um, I bet I talked about with like Jason Duffner's agent before is just, you know, at this point in his career, he kind of knows the places that fit him well, and so he's going to avoid the ones that don't because he doesn't want to waste a week on a course where he might miss the cut. And so you wonder about how much of that is going on with DJ. Obviously, the most talented golfer by a wide margin. Um, you know, still above average in strokes gained approach, uh, in a solid around the green and a solid putter as well. So I definitely think he's he's in play. He's a big favorite in the probability model. Uh, but I have those concerns just in the the back of my mind about you know the motivations for being here, the course fit elements, and a lot of it's going to come down to the ownership projection at the end of the day. Yeah, and we did take a few subscriber questions in our Slack chat, part of the dailyroto.com premium membership. And you know, this conversation around DJ covers a couple of those uh, that, that we can look at. One is, you know, at what ownership would you fade? consider fading Dustin Johnson and our initial look at ownerships, which, you know, it's, it's very tough to get too much of a pulse this early in the week, have them around 21%, which really isn't that high when you consider our probability model gives him like a 25% chance at a top three finish, which means he's likely going to be in the winning lineup unless you get one of the other expensive golfers that wins the whole thing and you can't fit him in uh, with DJ quite that much. So I'm not sure at what point I would fade him. I'm trying to balance things with the the course fit where I don't think he's as strong of a play as our finished probabilities model has him, but I do still think he's clearly the number one play in the field. And it's not that hard to build lineups with him. Like the drop off from him and you know, Paul Casey we'll talk about in a second to the nine ten K ish guys, I think, is a lot bigger than the drop off from those nine ten K ish guys to the seven to eight K guys. So I don't mind building lineups with the seven to eight K guys in one stud, whether it's DJ or Casey. So I'm not sure the exact ownership I would consider full fading Dustin Johnson, but I know that twenty percent is not it. Yeah, I don't think that it's going to get to a point that that's going to be in play for me. Um, so I imagine even in like a three max, like if I was only building three teams, I'd probably at least put them on one of them to start with. Um, and then, you know, maybe a Casey team and then maybe a balanced contrarian team is if I was only going to build three. Um, the other thing is DJ is actually not, he's not in the optimal as far as if you try to build on odds to get six of six golfers through the cut, uh, that would anchor on Casey. And I think you can put together a team with our projections that's around 21.5% to get all six golfers through the cut, which is generally what I find most weeks is about in that range. The best DJ team is only 21.3% to get six of six. And so that seems like a really high floor where you're actually not taking on that much risk or as far as your ability to get six of six golfers through the cut. So that's one of the things I try to use every week to let the the pricing kind of dictate how hard it is to fit in some of these top end guys. And um, usually it's a more balanced roster that yields uh, the highest probability of six of six. So I do think that um, playing DJ in three max makes sense. I think you can play them in cash games as well. And uh, I still think even if you try to blend the, the course fit, like the driver still does matter. It just doesn't matter quite as much. Approach matters. And so I put together sort of a weighted stat rankings. And DJ was still ahead of Paul Casey. It was just he was just only ahead by like half a stroke 
whereas other events the you know divergence might be more than that so um even taking all the fit stuff into account i still think that dj is uh the the top rated guy in this field so before getting into casey a bit more in depth the other user question uh and this involves both casey and dustin johnson just surrounded you know guys that did pretty well at the masters played all four rounds it's more of a narrative thing like do you have any concerns of an emotional letdown carry over to the next week is that something you're considering at all um i don't know about an emotional letdown i would would say no i'm not really considering that um just haven't seen enough data to suggest that that would necessarily be a thing i did mention like my concerns about dj just generally with why he would skip this event so many times throughout his career but then have to show up and play here and so maybe him it's not so much about playing the masters and emotional letdown but just uh playing in general i guess Uh, the other guys it doesn't feel like there's really going to be any letdown you know a a bunch of the guys that talked about with good course history are are guys that have played the masters on a historical basis so um i think the other piece i didn't really touch on with the incorporating vegas odds into the process um if you want to get into that as it relates to DJs, the biggest way that I do it is I incorporate them into the ownership projections. So they really do drive ownership projections. I lean on the data golf odds and probabilities as far as creating my lineups, and I like to compare those to the ownership questions. So I, I would not say that I use the Vegas odds as far as putting together teams, but I do think that Vegas odds, along with course history, significantly impact ownership, and therefore, um, if anything, end up being kind of something that I end up fading if our odds disagree severely with Vegas's on a guy. I'd say I'm, you know, 99% in line with that. The only thing is, you know, once in a while I do, you know, if I have a feeling on a guy that's a little bit different than the data golf model, sometimes I do like that confirmation bias to see where the sports book odds are. If, if they're, you know, also against this player, or they're also for this player to help me decide whether my, individual research which usually is nowhere near as good as data golf and, and what they set up to see if there's any merit to it or if i'm just kind of if i'm just kind of bonkers so um but yeah mostly it's about figuring out ownership and which guys just are overvalued by vegas and thus going to be overvalued by the rest of the dfs community uh let's let's talk a little bit more about casey in depth here and i i do think he closes the gap with dj a little bit because of the course fit he had a hip thing that we heard about at the Masters that, you know, he he wasn't feeling great. And it seemed like, you know, he made the cut, I believe, right on the number. Uh, but then he had a, a decent Saturday. And then Sunday round was awesome. He challenged the course record for a time there on Sunday. Ended up, I believe, one short of it. But he was on it for a while, with, you know, with a few holes to play, with a chance to break it. Just phenomenal round. And... His 40-round strokes gained approach, for example, comparing to Dustin Johnson, it's meaningfully higher. Yeah, and I, I think that Casey is a strong play this week. And I think, along with DJ, like I don't think their ownership will hit a point. It would probably have to get to like 30 35% where I would say, okay, then it's maybe a fade on the ownership alone. So I don't think it's going to get to this point. Definitely agree that Casey is a strong play. I'm not super concerned about the hip. Um, not sure if that was a, a thing or not. It seemed like he's getting quite frustrated from the golf that I was watching. And I was getting frustrated as well because I was loaded up on Casey. So that Sunday charge was, was nice. It maybe kept me from like a negative 80% week. Um, I'm also interested in Mark Leishman. I, I think that Kuchar is going to carry more ownership. He does historically carry heavy ownership. And he's got the course history here. And our probability models have them pretty close. So I think taking a discount on the ownership for Leishman is preferable to me. Uh, obviously, Kucher seems like a very solid, steady play, regardless, and a guy that you could certainly trust to anchor your cash lineup if you wanted to. Uh, I think I would just, in cash, probably try to get the upside of DJ or Casey in there. And then for tournaments, it's, it's looking like early on that Leishman is going to be an attractive pivot for me, and I'll probably end up um, under the market on Kucher. In this 9K range, we've got Harmon at 9,800, Webb 9,400, Poulter 9,300. Cantlay at 9,100, Cam Smith 9,000. Those two guys on the bottom, kind of frustrating. We, we had those the wrong way for the Masters with Cam Smith having a really good performance and Cantlay having a frustratingly poor performance. It felt like he left a lot out there because he really did drive the ball. 
pretty well. But in this range, you know, Webb Simpson is who I like the most. He's someone that we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit before, you know, historically not a good putter had turned his putting around earlier in the year. And it seems like that's stuck so far. If you look at the strokes gain trends tool on dailyroto.com, you'll see that he's only barely lost strokes putting on any individual week and more times than not, he's gaining strokes putting. Yeah, which is definitely not what you expect with just the overall perception of Webb Simpson. Uh, I think he ended up 20th in the Masters, uh, hold out for Eagle twice on that final <laughs> round. So there were a lot of DK points going around. He was on one of my teams that was making a charge in the Millie. That was the, the, I think it was either back to back or two, two and three holes. Um, I think, yeah, it, it was wild. <laughs> so Webb is definitely a good play. I think the only concern with him is just the ownership. Seems like it's going to be heavy this week. Um, he, he's kind of right up there with Cantlay in the probability model and uh, Cantlay a little bit higher in the fantasy model. Um, I would kind of consider them equal. And I, right now, just off that bad Cantlay experience from last week, I would trust playing Webb more in kind of some of the smaller field GPPs and cash game formats. But realistically, I'll still have exposure to both of them. And I think Webb is going to carry pretty heavy ownership so uh, right now he's one of the highest owned players in the field up above 25 percent and if that stays in large field tournaments i think you have to consider pivots because there are pretty good plays in this price range i think polter is the only guy that we would say is just uh, possibly flat out mispriced all right let's let's go to that eight to nine k range then and i like Haddon a lot up here at eight eight as Someone that I think is just underpriced for his talent level. Uh, the data golf guys have him with the fourth best long-term adjusted scoring average rank in the entire field. And, you know, he's not priced as the top five priciest golfer. You know, he's outside the top 10, I believe, in terms of overall price or right around there. And the initial ownership projections on him, you know, they're not, they're not going to be super low because no one up here in this range is going to be that low, but, it's right now coming in in single digits, even if that climbs to the low teens. Um, seems like a really good play. You know, someone that we were using in some pretty strong fields just a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I think his finish at the Masters was unspectacular, but solid. Um, just outside of the top 40, but did make the cut. Uh, I would I would generally agree with you. I think the other thing that's been kind of in the back of my mind and I've been thinking about is a lot of folks are using strokes gain stats to build their teams and some of the european tour players don't have strokes gain stats from those events that are incorporated into models yet and so a lot of those guys if if they're building rosters whether it's through uh like a site like fantasy golf national fantasy national uh like how not going to pop in those models and so i do think that his ownership will be low uh i would say in general he's a strong play in the probabilities and a guy you could consider in regardless of format and i think when you can get that ownership um it's going to be a strong play hadwin is probably my favorite play from a cash game perspective just considering the value that you get in the savings i think he projects pretty similar but the 700 savings is going to be something that allows you to go up and grab a dj or uh casey to anchor your team so hadwin would be a guy that uh, I would certainly be targeting in this range for cash games in smaller fields, single entry type GPPs. Yeah, I like Hadwin quite a bit. Him and another guy who we'll get to in the 7 to 8K range strike me as a combination of just naturally underpriced relative to field strength and skill level. And then the course fit is just a bonus for these guys. Um, but someone I like in GPPs, uh, Bryson DeChambeau was popular last week because he was 6900 gets the big price hike in this field up to $8,300. But if you look at his strokes gain trends approach, it's not that good every week. In fact, it jumps around. It's pretty volatile. But what you do see is a few weeks with some really high-end outcomes. And uh, just knowing that he has the potential to dial in those irons on a given week gives you that ceiling type of play and the ownership's going to naturally come down because the price is coming up this week. So I like him in GPPs. Uh, Kevin Nas, another guy in this range who I think will be a bit more popular. Um, what's our initial ownership projection actually isn't that popular on Nah, but um, he's somebody that does have good course history here and 
he just seemingly fits the narrative of the course fit where he's his lack of length isn't going to be docked. Uh, he's second in all of the PGA Tour and strokes gain around the green. Decent approach player as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see by the time the week's said and done. If not, ends up low owned. It's hard to imagine that. Um, it, if he if he is, it's great. I definitely would like that. Uh, I think that Ryan Moore is another really strong play in this range and one of the guys that I would be looking to as a pivot. Um, his approach game over two of the past three events at the Honda Classic and Arnold Palmer Invitational has been really strong, gaining almost four strokes on the field in each of those events. And so this does feel like the type of course where his you know, distance or lack of distance isn't going to be penalized as much as it might at other events. And uh, I think above average finish for him at the Masters last week. So no real concerns about his form. And then the other guy, I mean, I feel like this range is just loaded with a bunch of options and ownership's going to drive a lot of it. But I like Emiliano Grillo as a GPP play as well. Yeah, I'm on Grio, and then when we move to the 7 to 8K range, and, and again, part of the reason why you can pay up for a stud if you want to is a lot of these guys have high-end upside, in my opinion, either high-end upside or a good floor. And you've got Kevin Chappell and Zach Johnson at 7,900. Jason Duffner and Russell Knox at 7,800. And the three of those four guys, at least initially to me, stick out as course fits and Knox, Duffner, and ZJ with uh, Chappell maybe being more talented, but uh, having his advantage off the tee mitigated somewhat. So uh, a pretty low loaded upper 7K range. I was surprised looking in a bit deeper with Russell Knox, though, that he hasn't been that good in terms of, of strokes gained approach. In fact, he's lost strokes gained on approach in four straight tournaments, and none of the tournaments this season has he really gained a substantial amount. So I think I'm out on him of these four guys in the upper 7K range. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense just considering the other names and considering his course history here. Uh, it seems like he's being touted enough that it's going to carry some ownership. Um, Duffner was inside the top 20 as far as strokes gained. Tee Green at this event last year. I mentioned that he was actually one of the leaders in strokes gained off the tee, and I would expect that type of thing to continue. Um, I think in... If you want to go up in this range in cash games, I think that ZJ's form is better right now. And so we have him projected higher in the probabilities model as far as his top 20 odds. Um, but I think his ownership will be a little bit higher, too. So I think that ZJ and Duffner would be the, the guys in the high 7K range that I would be most interested in. And then at the 7700 price range, you know, some more interesting names, Charlie Hoffman who made the ace on 16 last week, uh Xander Sofferly who it just seems like we're always a little bit lower on than the market and then of course Luke Donald with his course history. It's funny if you sort the finish probabilities model on price you look and you see a little shade of green with the conditional formatting all the way down then boom you get hit with the red on luke donald who we've got as like less than a 50 50 bet to make the cut so as we mentioned before we know the course history is phenomenal but you look at the overall talent level i just don't think that you can justify this play especially when it's not like you're getting a great price or great ownership yeah i I hope the ownership gets high because it'll just be easier to I, at least stomach the decision. It's, it, I don't know, you go back and listen to the podcast through the years of this event. It's always a challenge. We're always going to end up on the same side of baiting Luke Donald. And I'm not sure it's been the, the best side to be on in the past, but hopefully it will be this week. Um, as we move through kind of the 7,700 range to 7,500, I think hit probably uh, the, the cover boy for this week will end up being Francesco Molinari, obviously a guy that has been loved a lot by the models in the past. Um, I think he exceeded expectations at the Masters last week as far as what people had for him and is the strongest value above 7,500. 36% chance to finish inside the top 20. And finally, at a course where it seems like it's a good fit for Molinari. So there's only one way this can end, and that is with a lot of tilt. (laughs) Yeah, Molinari... Uh, I took a lot of heat on Pat Mayo's DraftKings Masters preview for touting Molinari, but I, I can't blame him because I tout Molinari literally every single time as seemingly I go on that show. But he was the other guy when I was referencing Adam Hadwin as the guy that lines up as too cheap 
for this field, too cheap for his skill set. And then the course fit, you know, with his accuracy off the tee is an additional bonus where he's a great play in the model. And then something that's not in the model that makes him an even better play is also present and there. So I like Molinari. A couple guys I like for GPP down here. And, you know, one guy is just a total field play. I don't know why, Colin, you, you can tell me if I'm crazy, but Brant Snedeker sticks out to me. Maybe it's just because I'm hoping he does okay because I took him egregiously early in our season-long golf draft. I'm still kicking myself for that one. Um, but then Jason Hadley is uh, a guy that was chalk a month or two ago. Everyone was playing Hadley, and then he had a couple poor performances. It doesn't seem like he's on anyone's radar Pretty consistently strong approach play this season. Actually, third on tour. So I'm interested on him if he's going to be low-owned. He is one of those guys that I'm worried, though, gains steam throughout the week. I know our Slack chat was already starting to talk him up, even you know without me saying anything and having identified him separately. And one thing we've noted is when you try to find the course fit stuff is that everybody's looking at the same stuff. You know, it's not going to take a wizard to figure out strokes gained approach. It's probably a little bit more important than usual. So where I find myself landing on the course fit thing is if the market's not taking it into account, I don't mind bumping a play that our model doesn't really like. And maybe there's an advantage there that's just not seen in the model. But if it's going to be something where the market overreacts and owns a ton of this player, then I'm just going to stick with the model and fade them. So we'll see where the Hadley ownership comes in. Our initial projection on that ownership, though, is pretty low. Yeah, right now it's pretty low, and strokes gained approach has been something that even in these poor events or poor finishes that he had, has had, it is not something that has left him. So uh, it seems like that is one of the guys, definitely if, if at low ownership, he's in the mix and maybe is worth a manual adjustment. Um, other guy that I really like a lot, and I'm surprised at the early ownership projection, I imagine it'll change, but if it doesn't, I'm going to be loading up on him, and that's James Hahn. So kind of fits that same mold, but a little bit more consistent with his strokes gained approach than Hadley. And his results have been a, a tiny bit more consistent as well. I think it's nine or 10 events in a row now that he's gained strokes on approach with an average of around four strokes gained over that period of time. And that's not typically something that you're going to see at a guy who is projected for single digit ownership percent. Um, I know Molinari stands out as a value in our projections and I definitely like him, but I want Han in my mix as well. 25% odds to finish inside the top 20. And that's one of the best bets that you can get in the $7,500 range. Uh, I think the other guy that makes a ton of sense for cash games would be Charles Howell the third. I also expect his ownership to tick up just because he's always popular and at a $7,300 price tag. Uh, I don't think people are going to move away from him, but 28% chance to finish inside the top 20 and a pretty reasonable ownership projection here. So he would fit the mold with those balanced roster builds. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say we can't really move on out of this range before we talk about Mr. Boring Cash play there, uh, and being Charles, Charles Howell. Uh, some other, I mean, it gets pretty tight here where I feel like if you've got a strong personal feeling on some of these guys, you know, with like Schwartzel down here, you've got, uh, Bud Cauley, you've got Streelman, a bunch of guys where we have in like that 65 to 70% chance range to make the cut. Um, you know, if, if you've got something to differentiate those guys, but by, by all means, I think you can play on that because we've got them projected pretty tightly. One guy we really do like below 7K is Lucas Glover, who initial ownership projection looks low. And we do have two models that are powered by data golf. We've got the fantasy model and the finished probabilities model, and they both work, you know, from a very sound logic unbiased standpoint, but they work a little bit differently. You know, for example, we've got some course history baked into our fantasy model, which we don't into our finished probability model and some other things there. But we like when those models converge on a play and it looks like Lucas Glover is a guy they do converge on and he's top 10 in value in our fantasy model. He also has the highest mid cut probability of the sub 7k golfers in our finished probability model. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I guess maybe it's my own bias against Lucas Glover or about his play, but uh, I typically try to target him on courses that are longer and require really good tee green play. And so I'm, I'm like cautious about the projection on Lucas Glover this week. 
Um, I don't think you necessarily need to get down sub $7,000. Um, and obviously Glover's putting is egregious. And if he doesn't have a good week ball striking and the greens are some of the smallest on tour, then it could end up being a rough one. Um, I think that's like a MME play for me and not a guy that I trust enough in the three max type formats. I'm not even sure if I would trust him enough in a 20 max build, but I definitely understand what you're saying. And there's probably a lot of people out there like me who have their biases and are staying away from them as well. Uh, I think the other two guys that were just above the, the kind of the cheapest range that I want to go that had popped in the strokes gain trends were uh, Scott Piercy kind of fits that same similar mold to Hadley um, and Han as far as showing the outlier upside for strokes gained approach. And so um, I'm probably more likely to grab multiple guys from the $7,000 range than I am to go below $7,000. But I understand what you're saying because if you are looking to build a bunch of DJ teams, then obviously you want to, to dip into this range if necessary. And to your point about Glover's putting, you know, that's a stat that's very variable week to week. But I did find it interesting when you ran your strokes gain correlation thing, you know, a lot of times with this course, we're talking about approach a lot. You talk about around the green play a lot. But from more of a predictive and not a descriptive standpoint, you actually did find the putting uh, guys that were doing well putting in the current season seemed to do a little bit that seemed to matter more than the guys that were doing well around the green. So I guess that, that would be a check in your column. Uh, against Glover, but, um, so, so maybe, yeah, I'll move him more just to, to the MME conversation because of that. So, uh, we've gone through most of the price and spectrum here. Let's just sort of recap the ownership and, and what we think it looks like. So Colin, who's the early chalk? Yeah. So I think, um, there's a couple guys that are going to be early chalk that I don't necessarily see changing at all. Um, I think Matt Kuchar is going to be of that expensive range. Uh, I think there's enough questions and salary concerns about, I guess, like questions about DJ as far as um, like whether or not he's a course fit, like motivation. Like a lot of podcasts will like to talk about that, not just me. And so I, Kuchar doesn't really have any of those. And he lets you build a really balanced roster and he has a good history here. So I think all of those are indications that he is going to be chalk. Um, I think that Webb Simpson is the other guy that seems like it's going to be a clear-cut chalk case to me in the $9,000 range. So I guess as far as the ownership projections, you know, I I think Webb could stay near 25%. I think Kucher will be 20% plus. Uh, not sure if he'll get above 25% or not. So I'd say up above, those are kind of the guys. Um, do you have any guys that are jumping out as popular plays in the, the mid-range? Yeah, I mean, Adam Hadwin, who we already talked about, it certainly seems like he's going to be very popular in the mid-range, and for good reason, not someone that you can fade in, or that you have to fade in cash games. In fact, if I'm playing cash, almost guaranteed Hadwin's going to be my roster, and three maxes as well, I, you know, maybe not someone you want to go all in on because it's chalk, but I still think it's fine to play one of three, um, but he looks like he'll be somewhat chalky. Luke Donald, because of the course history, I think that's a pretty easy fade. Uh, and then some other guys that look like they could carry some ownership, like Kevin Kisner, Bud Cauley, and Ali Schneider-Jones. Yeah, and I definitely think that the comfort level is early in the week as far as ownership projections on Hadwin and Donald is really strong, and it's going to be there. I think Kisner will probably be there, too. Um, like, Cauley and Ollie were... Cauley and Ollie, uh got a nice <laughs> ring to it for your fantasy teams. But I was a little bit surprised, I guess, that they were popping. Uh, especially Bud Cauley just didn't think that... You know, Obviously, Ollie has a lot of bandwagon fans, like yourself. You were early on him. But um, I could this see... This does not hearing, seem like the course for him, though. <laughs> yeah, well, he had a good finish last year. So I think that's one of the reasons that people will be mm-hmm. comfortable to, to jump back on board. Um but Bud Colley, I think, is just, you know, a combination of touting, but also just the Vegas odds, which do drive ownership, uh, seem to respect Colley a little bit. But I could see his percent coming down, I guess, in the coming, um, in the coming weeks. So I guess of all, all those, Kucher, Webb, Hadwin, Kisner, Donald are the guys that I would be most comfortable with thinking that they'll be upwards of 20% plus in ownership. All right, so that brings us to one of the other user questions, which is uh, if there were three players you were to consider locking and three players to consider full fading, who would they be? And just to give some background, I did talk about, you know, sometimes in 
tournament structures with a high-end payout where you want to really differentiate yourself from the field, one possible strategy, certainly not for the faint of heart and something where you're going to have to embrace a lot of variance in the short term is locking a player and just taking that player on every single team. And the concept behind that is if that player does really well, you've got, you know, X amount of cracks at, you know, just falling into the optimal lineup more or less. And generally I like to do that with either, uh, if it's a very weak field, I'll do it with a high end golfer. If it's not a weak field, I like to do it with just someone who's underpriced, who I feel comfortable making the cut and, but does have some of that win equity. So you've got an, you know, a floor. If he makes a cut, you've got, if you're honoring a hundred teams and you've got a guy who makes a cut on a hundred teams, like the other aspect of this is that helps your min cash equity quite a bit. If you've locked in, um, one guy that made the cut on every single team, like that increases your cut made probabilities on six of six quite significantly. Of course, that's a little results oriented because you need that to happen first, but um, that's sort of the way I look at it. It's not something I do every week. And then as far as full fading, when we say full fade, we mean owning zero of that player. Sometimes when we say, you know, just like a regular fade, we just mean underweight. And I know it can, can, can get confusing, but full fade means, you know, we think too many people are going to own this player. There's a decent chance that player is going to fail. Uh, if I full fade this player, then, and that player does not succeed, then I've got, you know, I've, as far as overall your chances of winning the DFS tournament, you've eliminated a lot of the field. So Colin, uh, who are your three players that you're, con- that you would consider locking? I know that's generally not a strategy you do though. Yeah, I, I don't generally do it. I think the, the context for when you would want to do it is that someone's value is really strong and there aren't reasonable pivots nearby. Um, I guess you could consider that approach with a Casey or a DJ just because they are standout favorites as far as their odds in the data golf model and the ownership is not as high as you would maybe expect to see on such standout favorites. So um, I think those would be two of the guys that if you wanted to go with that approach, you you could. Um, but obviously they have to finish kind of within the, the top five probably for that to end up working out in your favor. Um, I, and then I think that the other easy answer early on in the week would be Molinari just because his ownership is it's reasonably, um, you know, high single digits, low teens, but he stands out as an extreme value for the top 20 odds and checks the course fit box. And he doesn't require, like you don't need him to do a ton to carry your team and have that make sense. So especially in, I don't know, like a smaller field GBP, um, making the cut might just be good enough and he's got a 78 percent chance to do that so it seems like a guy that has kind of low risk high upside in his price in a point where you know you could hit a bunch of the other pieces in your roster and still have him on the winning team yeah i think molinari is the number one guy for me if i were to do this strategy for you know pretty much all the reasons you listed he just seems to mesh well with that who that type of guy is if i had to pick two other guys um, you know, DJ and Casey are tough because it's not a weak field, but I do think they're clearly the best golfers in the field. I think, you know, if I were to do a high tier golfer, it'd be Casey. I've just been on a huge Casey kick lately. If you've listened to this podcast and then the other name, you know, Terrell Haddon, who, who we talked about interests me at 8,800. I just wish he was a little bit cheaper because I'm not sure, you know, how much, flexibility that leaves you to build DJ and Casey lineups alongside him is my only concern there. So I have to fool around a bit more with roster construction to see if there are enough lineups where I don't feel like I'm taking a really bad golfer to make hat and work with a DJ or Casey. Cause I don't want to full fade um, DJ or, you know, DJ and Casey, if I'm making lineups and locking someone. So if I were to lock those three guys, I'll, I'll say Casey had an, or Molinari give you a guy at a different price range. As far as the full fades, Luke Donald, the easy one, full fade, uh, throw that out there. Um, after that, Colin, who, who do you got? I know I took the easy one. I'll throw it to you. You can give the second one and then I'll, I'll come back and give a third one. Yeah. I mean, I've got three, Donald being one of them, I'm sure we'll share that one in common. Uh, what I'm looking for with the full fade would be uh, guys that are over-owned, low-projected, and have a lot of pivots nearby. So Luke Donald, easy fade in, in the full fade format. Graham McDowell, I think, is another easy fade that could carry 10% ownership based on his course history here. And then 
Ollie Schneiderjans is less of an easy fade because he still projects decently in our models, but I think he'll be overowned. And there are a ton of pivots in this $7,500 range that project slightly higher and project for slightly less ownership. And so I think just mixing and matching a bunch of those guys would be a better route to, to go than um, playing kind of a chalk 7,400 guy when there are a lot of pivots that you can have with better projections and lower ownership. The the other thing with a full fate of Ali is, you know, that's someone that, I mean, he can miss a cut. Like, obviously, all these guys can miss a cut. You know, most of these guys talk about, like, 70% chance, so it's not super bold to say he could miss a cut. But he is a volatile-type golfer. And, you know, that, and generally volatile plays, when volatile plays are high owned, that's kind of when it's natural to fade because if he misses the cut, it's like the opposite of when you lock Molinari. If Molinari makes the cut, you've got a hundred teams that have a decent min cash equity. Well, if someone who's high owned, and Ali's not going to be that mega chalk, but if he misses the cut, like you're really killing other teams in the field where you're picking up even just that min cash equity on them. Uh, one other guy. Oh, I was just going to say, I think the risk is pretty low, too, just as far as, like, yeah, if if he top 20s, that's not great, <laughs> but we have him at 17% chance to do that, but he's got much lower odds of killing you, and I don't think he kills you unless he finishes kind of inside the top 10, so it's one of those situations where even if he does fine, you know, you still have your pivots that can outscore him or produce comparably, and, and the chances that he, have, like, smokes all your rosters are a lot lower. The, the other guy I... Don't mind full fadings Ian Poulter, who I think might be a little bit better than our projections have him just because of his, his recent form, but uh, they do take into account that recent form, and it just looks like his probabilities of having a finish that really hurts you is much lower than all the other guys in his price range. And as you were saying with Ollie, like, even if he makes a cut, you know, what he has to do to hurt you. Same thing with Poulter, like, at $9,300, you know, as the seventh, I think, most expensive golfer in the field. Now, as long as he doesn't top five, you're, you're pretty okay. And it looks like there's going to be around, you know, definitely a sub 10% chance of that happening, closer to 5% than to 10%. So I'd put him on the full fade list. Um, we've got four minutes left here, and there's one more question that we or actually two more questions from subscribers colin i'll throw them both out there and you can uh, take whichever one you feel maybe touch on both uh we've got about four minutes left here on going for the green on fantasy sports network but one your thoughts on the new showdown slate format for draft kings and the second question was i forgot what the second question was so you're just gonna have to do that question Nice, nice. The old two question, one question setup. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I played the showdown pretty heavily over the weekend, so I've got some feelings about it. Uh, my results weren't strong, but I don't, I don't think that's the right way to evaluate things. In general, weekend golf has been a format for me that was really successful in the past because a lot of people fall to biases as far as gravitating towards people to the top of the, the leaderboard, and that left some other guys lower owned off of small sample events. So DraftKings had two different showdown slates um, or scoring formats for people who didn't play it. One was similar to weekend golf, where you got scores for points for birdies, bogeys, eagles, all that kind of stuff, streaks. And then the other one was that, but you also got points for where they finished on the leaderboard. And so both of those are two different games. Um, I preferred the game that was set up more like weekend golf, but it was probably just because I was more used to thinking about that as far as roster construction. Uh, the other game is one of the reasons I didn't like it was because it led to heavily overlapped lineups. I think just a third of the lineups in the weekend um, showdown format for round four in the Masters were unique. And so I don't think that's a great game, uh, but it does present different edges that can be had. So I think... It was hard for me to get away from playing Patrick Reed in that format, even though he was the leader, because his odds of finishing inside the top five were so high, and there was a sort of a set floor from him that you didn't get from the other golfers. Um, but I don't think he ended up on the winning rosters. I, I might be wrong. Um, but the, the on a normal week, I think with a leaderboard that's a lot more bunched, there's not going to be a guy who's such a standout favorite. And so in a lot of those cases, it can make sense to kind of end up veering away from the guy who finishes up top. Um, so I, I haven't digested the round four showdown format and how I'm going to approach it moving forward. Uh, the only other thing I would say about having one round versus two rounds is just it adds another element of variance. So one of the things you can do in our head-to-head -head betting tools, look at how guys 
compare it to each other in a four-round sample versus a one-round sample. And I think generally in a one-round sample, it just adds more variance, and the worst golfer is still more likely to outscore the um, to outscore the best golfer than you would over four rounds. So it would encourage more risk-taking in a one-round sample. Yeah, and the interesting thing with the, the showdown format, even though they gave those place points, you know, I, I think I was looking at it, and if Reed had dropped from like first to twelfth, it would have been the equivalent of, in terms of absolute value of points, I think it was like a twelve point drop as like a birdie versus somebody else having a bogey. So even though those place points seem like a whole ton, you could see where they could get made up quickly. I did talk with a few people on Twitter who suggested implementing maybe also a little bit of place differential points, which I think would be really neat. I just also wonder if then you start running into the where you're making the game just too complex for the casual users. But just from a pure standpoint, I do like the idea of the place points keeping, I mean, keeping you involved watching the leaders all the way through the end. But yeah, if you added in the place differential, maybe then you'd get a bit more uh, diversity in lineup making among people. Yeah, I think I, I think I would generally agree with that. The thing with Reed was he was ahead by so many strokes that there was almost no chance that he was going to be finishing outside of the top um, five, much less falling all the way down to 10th or something. So it is just one of those things that um, I, I guess you have to figure out, like the guys who are most likely to finish inside the, the top five are going to end up presenting strong value. And I think that what you saw was the guys who made a charge, maybe from like the six to 10 range, like a, a Fowler, um, a DJ, a Spieth, obviously um, ended up doing really well in the, in the format as far as their ownership compared to where they finished. And so you're trying to, you're going to need to be trying to balance, but I definitely think avoiding duplicates is something that if you are going to play the round four format, you really need to think about because uh, just two thirds of the rosters being duped is not something we're used to seeing in DFS golf. All right. That will do it for us on going for the green on fantasy sports network. If you're listening on iTunes, please rate and review us helps a lot. Also head over to dailyroto.com slash premium. Get yourself a premium golf package. Thanks for tuning in everyone.